Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today we got the official numbers for second quarter productivity, non-farm productivity. And the consensus was that it would increase for the first time in three quarters, because the prior two quarters, we saw a decline in productivity. So analysts were looking for a 0.5% increase for the second quarter. Instead, we got a decline, another decline of 0.5. So productivity actually fell by the amount that they, everybody expected it to rise. But more importantly, this is the first three-quarter consecutive decline in productivity since 1979. That was like, what, the Carter years? That was stagflation, the misery index, sky-high inflation, sky-high interest rates. That was the last time that we had a three-quarter drop in productivity. And President Obama is bragging about how great the recovery is. And Hillary Clinton wants more of this, promising more of this, vote for me. Yet we have to go back to the malaise of the Carter stagflation to find three consecutive drops in uh, productivity. You know, if you look at the actual size of the decline over those three quarters, it's the biggest drop in productivity since 1993. And I think there was a bit of a recession going on around there as well around the, I think the Gulf War days. If you look at the year-over-year decline that we just had, this is the biggest year-over-year decline in productivity in three years. Now, productivity is extremely important. You know, you hear all these politicians that are out there, they're always talking about, we want higher wages. We need higher wages. Well, you can't get higher wages without higher productivity. That is where higher wages come from. Now, a lot of politicians want to substitute government decrees. They want to mandate higher wages, like minimum wage. Like We're going to force employers to pay this minimum wage. But all that does is raise the bar. It makes it harder for unskilled people to get a job in the first place because now they have to force employers to pay them a wage that may be well above the productivity they can deliver to that employer. So in which case, they can't get a job. Right. So this doesn't raise wages. This just raises the bar. It just shows that you have to have higher productivity in order to get a job. Now, another popular way that politicians try to mandate higher compensation is by mandating benefits. We're going to force your employer to give you health care. We're going to force him to give you uh, mandatory sick leave or vacation, paid vacation days or time and a half for overtime. All kinds of benefits that companies, employers are required to provide their workers. And the idea is supposed to be, hey, I'm getting something for nothing, right? I voted for this guy and now he delivered. He he got my greedy boss to give me something extra. But that's not how it works. You see, when a employer hires somebody, they look at the overall cost of employing somebody relative to the productivity of that worker. And 
if I am mandated to provide certain benefits, those benefits have a cost. I mean, if they didn't have a cost, they'd be provided already. The fact that they're not being provided is because they cost something. And if you force the employer to provide benefits that have a cost, how's he going to pay for it? The worker only has so much productivity. And assuming he's already getting paid commensurate with that productivity, and now the government says, oh, you've got to provide this benefit, how is it financed? Well, wages have to go down. So what happens is the, the, the compensation changes, the mix. So now there's less cash payment and more non-cash benefits. Now, maybe the worker doesn't prefer that. Maybe the worker doesn't care about medical leave or insurance. He just wants more money. But he can't have it because the government took that decision away from him by mandating that you must receive a portion of your pay in these particular benefits, whether you want them or not. And, of course, the idea that the politicians are hoping that the voters fall for is, hey, I got something for nothing. But that's government for you. They always want you to think you get something for nothing. But whenever you get something for nothing, the something that you're getting costs a lot more than you think because the nothing is not nothing. There is a cost to that. In this case, your wages are going down so that your benefits go up. But overall, you're worse off. Everybody would be better off if the government just stayed out and let each worker negotiate independently with his employer for a compensation package that is most valuable to that worker. Those who want more time off or more flexible schedules or paid vacations or paid sick leave or maternity leave, they can have that if they want it and take less cash. The people who don't want any of that, they can just get more cash. But productivity is really the holy grail of higher wages. I mean, think about it from this way. Let's assume that I'm going to hire somebody to dig uh, a big ditch. Let's say all they can do is dig with their hands. How much can I pay somebody digging a hole with their hands? I mean, they're not going to dig very much, right? They're not very productive. It's going to take a long time to dig the hole if they're digging with their hands. Now introduce a shovel. Shovel is a piece of capital. Where'd that come from? There's no fairy godmother that just created the shovel, right? Somebody had to invent it. Somebody had to make it. Where'd the material come from, right? Somebody had to underconsume. There had to be some sacrifice to create this piece of capital. But now I put this piece of capital, a shovel, in the hand of the worker, and now he digs much faster. I can pay him more to dig the hole now because he's going to be more efficient. He's more productive because of the capital. The worker on his own isn't really more productive, but once I gave him a piece of capital, I raised his labor productivity. Now, what if I give this guy an excavator? And now he can dig, you know, with a huge excavator. Now, assuming the worker knows how to operate the excavator, which does probably mean the worker now had to get some skills. He had to be trained somehow because, you know, anybody can just grab a shovel and dig, but operate one of these big excavators. Got to know what you're doing, right? But assuming that a worker is skilled and can operate that excavator, he can earn a lot more money than a guy digging with a shovel because of the increased productivity provided by that excavator. But the excavator requires even more capital to come into existence, even more saving. So if we really want higher workers, higher wages for workers, we need to raise worker productivity, and that's not happening. It is falling now for three consecutive quarters, the first time since 1978. And we're talking about what great economy we have. The Fed is congratulating itself for what a great job it did. Obama is saying everything is great. And, and Hillary is saying, yeah, it's so great. Let's have four more years. This is a disaster. If you're a real worker, this is what you have to look at. 
It's productivity. And if productivity is going down, your wages are going down. And if you want wages to go up, you got to get higher productivity. And how do you get that? Less government, lower taxes, higher interest rates. So we get more savings and more investment and less of all this speculation and paper shuffling that we have in this bubble economy. But I want to talk a little bit more on this podcast about Donald Trump's economic speech yesterday. And not really the entire speech. I just want to focus on one aspect of it that's getting a lot of press. And that's the inheritance tax, the estate tax, right? After you die, uh, the government comes in. And if you have a sufficient amount of money, they basically take half of it. And Donald Trump is promising to repeal the tax, which is a great idea. The inheritance tax is probably the single worst tax we have. And also, it will deliver the most bang for the buck if we eliminate it, because the government doesn't collect much money in the estate tax. But the estate tax itself does enormous amounts of damage to the economy. Now, what am I talking about? Because when most people talk about the estate tax, they say, oh, you know, it's just for the rich, right? Because only two out of a thousand actually pay the estate tax. And maybe that's the actual number. I'm not really sure who actually writes the check. But the damage is not just the people paying the tax. It's for everybody else. It's all the people that are affected in a negative way by the existence of the estate tax. And of course, the Democrats and the media are jumping all over Trump. Aha, you see, he's showing his true colors. He's really not a man of the people. He's really not for the worker. He's for the super rich, because those are the ones that are going to benefit from the reduction in the state tax. Those two people out of a thousand. In fact, Donald Trump himself, well, he's got a $10 billion net worth. So he's going to save $5 billion. Ha-ha, that's it. That's why he's running. That's the real reason. He wants to become president so he can eliminate the estate tax so that when he dies, his kids have $5 billion extra, right? That's what they're trying to say. This has got nothing to do with it. Yes, it is a negative for the people who actually pay the tax. But, you know, the estate tax itself, the origins of the tax, the reason it's so popular is because it appeals to the lowest common denominator of envy, of greed. The idea is that why should some people get to inherit all this money? I mean, after all, they didn't work for it. They just happened to be in the lucky sperm club, right? They were born to wealthy parents and they got lucky. They hit the lottery and it's not fair. And so let's equalize it. Let's take away some of that money and give it to the other people who weren't as lucky. Well, you know, Jack Kennedy, a very famous Democrat, once said, life isn't fair. And he was right. And of course, you know, he was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the fact that it wasn't fair because he was a member of the Lucky Sperm Club, being born to a wealthy, uh, you know, a descendant of a wealthy uh, bootlegger. Uh, but he became very wealthy. But that was true. Life isn't fair. Deal with it. And when it comes to the estate tax, it's not about the guy who's lucky enough to inherit it. It's got nothing to do with him. It's about the person who earned the money and his right to determine who gets it after he dies. That's a fundamental property right. If I own property and it's my property, it doesn't belong to the government, it doesn't belong to the king, I can give the property to whoever I want. You can't have an estate tax because you're diminishing property rights. I have a right to give away my property. And if I have a right to give away my property, you can't tax it. You see, the government, in order to tax the estate, they claim it's a privilege. They say that 
giving away your wealth is a privilege, and they're going to levy a tax on the privilege. And the reason they do that is because if they taxed the estate directly, it would be a direct tax, and it would be unconstitutional unless it was apportioned. So what the government has said is, well, it's not a direct tax. It's an excise tax on the privilege of leaving your money to your, to your heirs. And we're going to base that excise tax on the amount that you leave your heirs. But this is all nonsense. This is where the Supreme Court bends the Constitution or ignores the Constitution under the guise of interpreting it so they can allow an unconstitutional tax. Because it is not a privilege to leave your property to your children or your grandchildren. It is a fundamental right. If you don't own property, I mean, if you don't have a right to give your property to whoever you want, then you don't own it. So the government concocted a phony privilege to get around the apportionment clauses for a direct tax, and our Supreme Court looks the other way and rubber stamps this blatantly unconstitutional usurpation of power. But the, the other thing is, the people that are leaving a large estate that is large enough to be subject to this tax, obviously, they paid a lot of taxes along the way. I mean, you don't accumulate a, lot of, a big estate unless you earn the money. We have a very high progressive income tax. So if I earned a lot of money every year, I paid income taxes on it every year. Right? Maybe I paid capital gains taxes and income taxes. And now whatever I have left is what I have left after I paid all those taxes. And now when I die, the government's going to take half again? I mean, what is the actual tax rate? When you take all the taxes you pay when you're working and then another 50%, you're talking about 70 80% effective tax rate? I mean, that is ridiculous. That is absurd. That is reducing the average American property owner to the level of a medieval serf. So, yes, it is an outrage that the government tries to take so much money uh, from people. But that is not the main reason to oppose the estate tax. And I wish the people who were talking about repealing it didn't fall into the liberal trap of talking about the rich people who are going to save money and how it's unfair that they get taxed again, because people don't really care about that. Because, again, they don't look at it as a tax on the guy who earned it. It's a tax on the lucky kid who did nothing and inherited it. So that kind of argument doesn't work. But also, in reality, the super rich don't even pay that big an inheritance tax because they use the tax code, they use the loopholes, they use complicated and expensive structures and trusts that involve lots of lawyers and accountants, and they devise ways around the tax. Now, of course, all of this is unproductive use of resources, trying to figure out how to structure your state to avoid a tax and buy all sorts of fancy insurance products and different tricks. You know, I would rather have entrepreneurs figuring out how to grow their business to leave an even bigger estate than try to figure out how to keep the tax man uh, away, right? Because these are smart people who are productive. We don't like them wasting their time trying to figure out how to avoid an estate tax. Let's just get rid of the estate tax so that they can put their efforts to more productive purposes. And let's free up, you know, the lawyers and the accountants to do something else that's more productive other than devise these complicated uh, estate tax avoidance schemes. The people who are most likely to pay the estate tax are the smaller businessman, guy owns a business, maybe has a couple of partners, not a publicly traded company, privately held business, right? Let's say that business is worth $50 million, right? Because the estate tax kicks in, I know, somewhere above 10 million, right? So let's say you got a, you know, you got a $50 million business, you got a big estate tax coming. Well, if a business is worth $50 million, 
That doesn't mean that there's a $50 million pile of cash there and you could just peel off $20 million and, and, and give it to the IRS. No. I mean, first of all, valuations are going to be based on a number of factors, but one of them is going to be the cash flow for the business, but you discount that based on the interest rate. And the lower the interest rate is, the higher the present value of those income streams. So in today's era of 0% rates, a lot of privately held businesses, on paper anyway, are going to have these big values. Right? That's number one. But number two, a lot of the assets are not liquid. You know, some of them are non-cash. Let's say you have goodwill. That's your reputation in the marketplace. I mean, you can't sell that, really. I mean, it's not a physical, tangible asset. It's intangible, but it has value. You get taxed on it. But then you have property and equipment that you need to operate the business, right? You can't really just liquidate that. Maybe you have some inventory, but, you know, you, know, you, you need that. Um, you know, there's probably some receivables, which you don't actually have the cash. I mean, so how much cash does it actually have? Probably not much. Now, maybe somebody who leaves a $50 million business to his kids, maybe he also leaves $10 bucks. Maybe he's got that. But that's still not enough to pay the tax on this $50 million asset that's now being handed down. So what happens? They've got to sell the business to raise the money to pay the tax. And of course, now when you're forced to sell the business right away to pay a big tax bill, you probably won't even get the $50 million valuation because it's kind of a distressed sale. Maybe the market's not right. Maybe there's not that many buyers around, right? Maybe you can't get top dollar. And who is the most likely buyer for a business where the principal owner just died, right? Who's, who's most likely to buy it? Who's probably going to give the heirs the most amount of money? A larger competitor, right? He's going to outbid anybody else who wants to operate the business independently. Why? Well, because the larger competitor a, sees an opportunity to take out a competitor, right? That's good. Less competition, easier for me. Raise my prices, charge the consumer a little bit more. That's number one. But number two, you're going to have economies of scale. You're going to have synergies. You're going to be able to take a lot of the revenue from that business and just add it to your revenue and get rid of a lot of the expenses, a lot of the overhead. What is usually the biggest overhead? Wages, the labor. So what happens is, a guy dies, and now because there's an estate tax, the business has to be liquidated to a larger competitor, and all of the workers get fired. Yes, the heirs still end up with a lot of money. They still get a big payday, right? They still make a bunch of money. They don't make as much money, but they still get a check, right? But their employees, the workers, they get a pink slip instead of a check. That is the angle that Donald Trump and other Republicans need to take. That is the destructive nature of the estate tax. It destroys businesses, it destroys jobs, and it destroys competition, so it hurts the consumer. In fact, you know, one of the biggest advocates of the estate tax is the hypocrite Warren Buffett. And why does Warren Buffett like the estate tax so much? Because he gets to buy up a lot of these businesses where the owner dies and now they can't afford to pay the estate tax. See, he's the big business that gets to gobble up the competition. He grows his market share and can charge more money, right? So that's the part of the hypocrisy of, of Warren Buffett. But, you know, it gets even worse than just the fact that, okay, the business has to be sold and we lay off a lot of workers, right? Because if there was no estate tax, the heirs could just operate the business and it can continue and it can grow. And that kind of leads me to the larger picture here. A lot of people who run small businesses, family businesses, right? You, you start a business and you employ your kids. 
And then maybe you hope that your grandkids will come into the family business. And capitalism works best when people think far into the future. But the problem with human beings is we don't live very long, right? I mean, yeah, maybe we could, some of us can make it to 100, you know, but not that many. You know, a lot of us make it into our 80s. But a lot of the guys that do a lot of hard work and run businesses and have a lot of stress, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they could die in their 60s or 70s or you know, they could die earlier, right? So we don't live very long, but we don't want entrepreneurs to limit their vision to their own lifetime. We want them to think real long term. We want them to think about making investments today that may pay off in 50 years or 100 years. They won't be there. So if I know that my business has a short life expectancy because, you know, I can't survive. It can't survive the estate tax. So if I know that I can only operate a business during my lifetime and then I, I just got to start it up and sell it out, that really limits what I can do and how far forward I can think. But also, you want to be able to bring your kids into the business. Teach them what you know so that they can operate the business. And they can teach their kids. And you can have these businesses in, in families for generations where young people grow up in the business and they learn from their parents. And, you know, the parents bring them on board and they start them in, you know, maybe in the mailroom or wherever, the, you know, they start and they, they work them up and they live in the business. They eat, they, they, they breathe it, they sleep it because their parents bring it home, right? I mean, who best to train their replacement than the father of his heir apparent? nurturing uh, young people from a, from a, from a young age uh, to take over. We want businesses. Why do we want to destroy a business? Why do we want to destroy the know-how and the drive? Because the more businesses there are, the more successful those businesses are, the better everybody else's standard of living is. We want people to think long-term. We want people to think and invest beyond their years, beyond their own lifetimes. We want them training people, training their kids and their grandkids, and making investments that are not going to pay off during their lifetimes, but they know they're going to pay off during their grandchildren's lifetimes, and they care. People care about their prodigy. They care about their grandchildren and their future, and people will do things. They will sacrifice for themselves, knowing that it's going to benefit their grandchildren, even if they are not alive, to see the benefit. The fact that they can enjoy the fact that they know that it's there, right? They know that they've done something that's going to benefit posterity, that's going to benefit, you know, their, their great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren. People are motivated to do that, and that is a good thing because society benefits from that because we get better businesses that provide better products, more innovative products at lower costs, and they provide workers with more jobs at better wages, but all of this is sacrificed on the altar of envy. Oh, no, it's not fair that somebody inherits some money. So we got to stop this. We've got to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Why would you do that? Again, it's the lowest denominator politics because the average guy doesn't know. He doesn't understand economics. He doesn't listen to the Peter Schiff podcast. All he knows is Paris Hilton's going to inherit all this money and, you know, that's not fair, you know, and it's not fair. And, of course, the thing is, not all wealthy people are, are Paris Hiltons, right? They don't all just go out and spend their money. There are people who take what they inherit and they grow it. See, if you really want to get the members of the Lucky Sperm Club, 
Don't have an estate tax. Just have a high sales tax, right? Tax the rich when they buy a yacht, when they buy a mansion, right? When, when they spend their money, when they buy furs and diamonds and all the other stuff that Paris Hilton does, tax that, right? Don't tax the income because if somebody inherits money and doesn't just become a philandering, you know, playgirl, playboy, whatever, whatever they're going to be, if they actually take their inheritance and invest it in growing the business, why in, on earth would you want to tax that? Because that's just the seed corn. You know, when people don't spend their wealth, when they use it to grow a business, they are benefactors. They are benefiting society. It's when they spend their wealth on themselves that now they're doing something selfish. And of course, I'm not begrudging anybody who earned a bunch of money to enjoy it. They, people should enjoy it. And obviously, if somebody inherits money and they didn't work at all and they just spend it, you know, that's their privilege. They didn't do anything. But you know what? It's not the child who is going out and blowing an inheritance. You can't look at it as, well, you know, it's not fair to the child. It's fair to the parent because he decided who gets that money. And that's one of the reasons, too, that people work so hard to accumulate money because they know that when they die, at least the people they love will benefit. So even if they can't benefit from the wealth that they haven't consumed, eventually their heirs will. And of course, if you raise your children right, which I think most hardworking entrepreneurs do, they don't leave their money to a Paris Hilton. They leave their money to far more responsible children who don't squander their wealth, right? They use it productively, just like their parent or grandparent did who produced it in the first place. But when you limit people's horizon, when you, people know, okay, well, I've got I've to run a business and I've got to liquidate it before I die and sell out to a competitor, well, now I have no reason to train my kids or my grandkids and bring them into the business because the business isn't going to exist because the, the estate tax makes that impossible. So now you're more likely that when your kids inherit money and they're not necessarily in your business, they are more likely to just go out and blow it and, live, and lead a party life. And that doesn't really benefit anybody. What benefits people is when money is saved and invested, not when it's spent. Not that the people who earned it don't have a right to spend it and not that their children and grandchildren don't have a right to spend it. But if you're going to tax the members of the Lucky Sperm Club, don't tax the inheritance because that punishes the guy who earned the money, but more importantly, it punishes society. It punishes the employees who lose their jobs. It punishes the customers who lose a competitor in the marketplace. Just tax the money when it's spent. So if they go out and they buy an expensive product, then they pay a tax, right? That, that doesn't hurt the economy. That doesn't undermine economic growth. That doesn't undermine job creation. That doesn't undermine incentives for entrepreneurs to grow their businesses, to invest in their businesses. But the estate tax does all that. It is a growth killer. It is a opportunity killer. It is a job killer. And how much revenue does the government actually derive from the tax? It's minimal. In fact, I bet that wealthy people, super wealthy people, spend more money avoiding the tax than the government actually collects by the tax. So get rid of it. It costs the government almost nothing. But the benefits to society will be so strong, the government will actually come out ahead. Because now you'll have more businesses paying more taxes, employing more people, who are also paying more taxes. That is economic reality. And unfortunately, almost everybody lives in economic fantasy 
because of the politics of greed and envy. And I wish people like Donald Trump or other conservatives or libertarians would do a better job of explaining who actually pays this tax and what the real economic reasons are for repealing it, not just lowering it. It needs to be zero. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.